Hey, Parker, how's it with your soul? Hey, Carrie, my soul's in good shape as long as I don't try to outrun it. How about you? Oh, traveling at the speed of soul. Um, I'm good. Um, And I am so excited about our podcast today. Today we'll be talking with Luther Smith, and I've been looking so forward to it. Well, you know I feel the same way. So welcome, everyone, to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit between us And to us and how we live between the words Luther, before I introduce you, I want to welcome you very warmly to this podcast. Carrie and I are so glad to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm honored and thrilled to be here. Um, You and Carrie are two of my most admired people. Uh, And uh, to have the two of you together is something I would not have imagined, but I'm glad it is happening. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That that just made my heart warm. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So Parker, you have a story and a question, I think. I do have a wonderful story of how Luther and I first met. We met at the Alex Haley Farms Mm. uh, in Tennessee, um, a meeting that was actually triggered by one of Luther's students from Candler Theological Seminary, Greg Ellison, who's been on this podcast with us, a good friend of Carrie's and mine and a very good friend of Luther's. Um, Greg was pulling together a book on... Howard Thurman, the life and work of Howard Thurman, called Anchored in the Current. And he invited a whole bunch of people, including his mentor, uh, his beloved elder, Luther Smith, who is one of the world's leading experts on Howard Thurman, to help us give shape over a four-day retreat uh, to this wonderful, wonderful project. And so I had a chance to get to know Luther and a lot of other good people whom I had not met before. And I'm ever, ever grateful for that opportunity and that new sense of community. As I said, Luther is known around the world, really, for his work on Howard Thurman, for introducing the world in so many ways to this great, great theologian who was, among other things, a spiritual guide to Martin Luther King Jr. and to a lot of other people in the great civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. But Luther is so much more than his books. We'll post links to all of his books with this podcast. He's, he retired in 2014, two years before I met him, from 35 years of teaching at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, where, where he had a huge impact on generations of Candler students, and on the school itself, on its faculty, on its staff, on its programs. There's a a link, another link we'll put up is to a retirement tribute that Candler put online around the time of Luther's retirement. I've never read a richer or deeper testimony to one person's impact on an institution and on generation after generation of students than than the one we're going to link Um, our followers to. Among other things, Luther is credited with ensuring that black church studies 
is now an integral part of life at Candler Theological Seminary and not simply the title of a, of a program. Uh, so much to say about Luther, uh, especially that I love the man <laughs> and feel so very close to him in so many, many ways. One of those people that I met only recently but feel like I've known all my life. Three words surface from folks at Candler repeatedly about this wonderful person, wise, passionate, and humble. And I just want to add, he has a great sense of humor. I think when he and I talk, we spend about half our time laughing. So with those words, um, it's a real privilege and treat to have you here today, Luther. And I want to begin by asking a question about the ancestors. Um, I'd love to know more about the backstory of all the amazing things you've done in your life, about the family, about the revered elders, about the mentors, about the social influences and the religious and spiritual influences that, that brought you to Candler in the first place and along the line to your um, really historic meeting, I think, with Howard Thurman. So can we start at the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Parker, for that generous introduction. Um, and I'm having to do a lot of um, immediate editing as I think about this narrative you've requested from me in terms of influences. Uh, and of course, all of us would find ourselves uh, failing to mention uh, significant persons. But uh, what immediately comes to mind for me is, of course, my home life, my family and my sister, who were uh, nurturing, uh, supportive, in encouraging in all the ways that I think a child might uh, desire to be. It was a place not only of that kind of warmth, but also larger consciousness as to this world in which we're living. I recall at age uh, five, uh, sitting in front of this black and white TV that we had just received watching uh, political conventions and pulling for Adelaide Stevenson who we know did not become president, <laughs> primarily because um, as we had discussed around the table, Adelaide Stevenson would be more uh, responsive, we felt, to the realities of uh, African-Americans. And uh, everything that was happening at a social level in terms of race was something that became conversation around the kitchen table. So I grew up uh, at age five, with not only a sense of my own self uh, within the context of this family, but also what it meant for me to be Black in this country. Um, my mother, even when I was uh, in my 40s, would talk about the pain she had in explaining to me why she could not uh, take me to the counter in the downtown store in St. Louis to uh, have the hot dog that I wanted, that, you know, the aroma just 
takes over the whole level of the store and uh, you're all the more hungry once you have picked that up. Uh, and as much as I pleaded, uh, she had to tell me why they would not serve us. And that's a pain that stayed with her for decades uh, going through that. But I grew up with that kind of uh, explanation as well as the pain of what was occurring in the larger country, the kinds of things that were happening such as with Dr. Martin Luther King and the movement uh, with Emmett Till, um, which the family did in no way seek to in some way uh, shelter those realities from me. And in fact, I think encouraged my knowing um, as, as black parents must do now, especially for children in terms of just being safe on the streets. The, my second family was my local church. And I could feel as uh, concerned about embarrassing the church as I did my, my family, my mother and father and sister. Um, and that was another place of social consciousness for me. It was a church in which the pastors were leaders in the community, as well as many of the lay people in the community were very active. Uh, I think of those as really the, the two most substantial places of, of nurture for me. My, my mother's uh, family had uh, two strong narratives. One was uh, my mother growing up uh, in a impoverished household, uh, speaking of days without food and eviction. I feel her grave rumbling now that I'm saying this publicly because she never talked about this publicly. Mm -hmm. But um, it was formative for us to, my sister and I, to, to, to realize um, how what we were experiencing should not be taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And uh, that where we now experience our parents being, my father eventually became a, a school principal, my mother, she was a speech correctionist. Um, they were very, very active in um, forming us with an understanding of uh, who we are and that uh, we must not take uh, our life in the, in the home for granted. The other aspect of this is my mother had a very um, activist grandfather who was a source of pride uh, for her. Someone who was so prominent in the community that uh, there was a park named after him, uh, a whole section of the city named after him. And his activism led to the streetcars in St. Louis um, being integrated in a way in which no longer could they be passing black passengers who had waited on the streetcar to come, which had been something of a practice occurring in the city. And he, he forced them to be responsive to uh, black passengers that led to a change in the laws. Um, 
he was very active in being a grant agent in Oklahoma, um, rece received a presidential commission related to that. And even more recently, they've named one of these uh, local locomotives in the zoo after him. This gives you some idea of how over uh, the decades, uh, the captain, Captain Tandy, uh, was such an influence on life in the uh, city of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. um, there's correspondence uh, that I have had from him that you know I'm, I'm seeing uh, him commentating publicly about issues with Frederick Douglass and so many other prominent names mm -hmm. that uh, would immediately be coming to mind. But this was another significant influence mm -hmm. for me. Um, hearing this narrative from my mother about uh, what it means to affect change and having the kind of courage to go against the odds in affecting change. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's part of this generational uh, narrative for me that to which I feel deeply indebted. Well, thank you. And uh, before Carrie uh, uh, asks the next question, I just want to make a note that maybe we can return to later. You use it. Uh, you used a phrase early in your narrative about learning uh, at the dinner table, at the kitchen table, about what it means to be black in this society, and it it aroused a yearning in me. I wish I had learned in my home what it meant to be white in this society. And it's a, it's a stream of thinking that I think is really, really important that maybe we will have a chance to pursue later on or on another occasion. But you certainly helped me understand your activist impulses. Well, it's, it's also one of those things that, uh, you know, it's, first of all, it, it certainly isn't uh, unique to me. And so many African-Americans have had to focus on the question of what is the significance of my racial identity to the larger society? And that's a matter of survival. You know, this is not just a matter of, in some sense, having uh, the desire to have some kind of, of racial consciousness uh, for, you know, you know, being able to um, speak about one's own racial roots with a sense of pride. This is a matter of survival. <laughs> and I have at times found it difficult to be in interracial settings with persons who are very, if not um, reticent, at least unwilling to speak about their own racial identity. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be white? Yeah. And I experienced this with students at the school. Whenever I would bring this up in class, so many of the students struggled with um, articulating their own racial roots. And part of me is thinking, you know, I've had to do this since I was five and younger. So what's going on with you such that uh, this, this isn't something that you find yourself being able to do as an adult? 
and with a kind of of awareness that I would assume all the years have in some way brought to you. Um, and one of the things that would come through is uh, the way in which whiteness had been so claimed by uh, organizations like the Klan yeah. or white nationalists. Mm -hmm that to then speak about being white only brought forth for them those kinds of public narratives of supremacy. And it was hard for them to grasp an identity of whiteness um, that in some way attended to their own current convictions about matters of justice and equality and what it means for us to be in beloved community together. They really did not have much um, support from family, from mm -hmm. friends, from their own religious institutions about the issue of white racial identity. So that was helpful for me to realize. Um, and it also came home to me uh, through a dear friend, Don Shockley, who wrote a book entitled white, Christian, and free. And he was saying how the publisher loved what he was writing, but the publisher didn't like the title because the publisher felt this title of being white, Christian, and free would turn off readers because readers would only associate whiteness with things like the Klan and white nationalists. So when you have this kind of institutional reticence uh, playing into the narrative of speaking uh, about white identity as something that if anyone's going to do that, it has to be in the negative. If we, if we fail to have the more complex narratives, the more complex understandings of, of racial roots, we will find ourselves, I think, avoiding a conversation that we so desperately need. Amen. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, one of the things, um, you know, in my reading, some of the readings, um, I, I was taken by many of the comments that students made. Um, students talking about your classes uh, being a place to really explore, you know, a what's on the growing edge of spiritually in terms of church, in terms of community, and as you're talking about identity, and being able to talk about uh, these these uh, really important conversations uh, in this space, in this space where it was a welcome conversation and uh, even when they were difficult conversations, um, approached with um, compassion. So uh, I was really taken, really taken by these, uh, and it made me want to take one of your classes really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we're in the middle of doing that right now. <laughs> well, personally, the um, what I loved about teaching was the opportunity to not only engage my students but to also learn from them. Mm. And there are um, matters of wisdom that I learned from them, matters of anxiety that I heard from them. Um, matters of, of, of issues that 
they had not had the opportunity to engage in their own family settings or their own church settings. Um, and the anxiety which they had even being in such a uh, context as a seminary where there were people of such diverse religious convictions as well as diverse national identities as well as diverse racial identities and ethnic identities as well as sexual orientation identities. These are all kinds of, of, of factors that the students bring into a classroom that too often get lost if you're simply trying to impart information and then test them on the information. Mm -hmm. And what was so special to me about the classroom was to bring forth the issues of a student's heart and not just of a student's mind, certainly both. Um, and the kind of issues of heart that complicate the capacity of a student to really engage the, the issues of mind. Yeah. Um, and unless you're dealing with, with both, uh, to use the title of Thurman's autobiography, unless you're dealing with head and heart, yeah. you're not really attending to the whole student. You're not really attending to the kind of formation that needs to occur for this student to be not only more available to the life of the church and the life of the world, but for a student to be available to herself or himself. Um, you know, when you when you mentioned Thurman, the head and the heart, um, uh, it, it makes me want to ask you a bit, a bit about that history too. But not just, I, I know that you're a preeminent scholar and educator, um, but uh, I also know that your personal story intersected with Thurman and that um, your reasoning was not just academic uh, in terms of seeking him out. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what drew you to Thurman and, and obviously those ideas of the inner and the outer life, the head and the heart, um, really resonated with you and, mm. and carried through? The first time I heard Howard Thurman uh, was in 1972. I graduated from seminary. I was working uh, for the seminary. It was a program called Education for Black Urban Ministries and attended a conference in New York. It was the National Committee of Black Churchmen. He was a keynote speaker. He was closing the conference. Um, I went to New York uh, having heard so many clergy speaking of Thurman with uh, a sense of awe, <laughs> beyond admiration, this sense of awe. So I had anticipated I was going to be hearing someone uh, within a speaking tradition that was uh, very, very um, forthcoming with volume <laughs> and uh, the, 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 the focus on the extent of oppression over which those of us who are Black are needing to, to overcome because of the oppressive forces that uh, have been part of, of, of our lives. And as I listened to Thurman, who began with 139th Psalm, mm -hmm. which the way in which he opened it 
and prayed it. He was praying it. He wasn't reading it. It was as if I had never heard the psalm before. <laughs> and it's, it, it said something to me that here his heart was in it in a way that I had not anticipated and in a way that I had not heard uh, such that this sort of revelation about the open heart uh, was, was occurring uh, for me. And he moved through his address at a very deliberate pace as Thurman can do. And 180 degrees from what I expected. Mm. But what occurred to me, no, I, I can't say what occurred to me. What was happening to me <laughs> was a sense of what I, I came to call a religious experience. I, I felt I was certainly within myself, but beyond myself. And it's not as if this is what Thurman was trying to evoke in any sense. It was his offering of, uh, of, of Howard Thurman in what he was talking about. And not in the way in which you know, some speakers will tell you about they have dirty hands and you get the sense that they are you know, putting their dirty laundry up on the line. Not in that sense, but, but with, with a kind of humility of someone who is saying that the kind of, of critical word that I have does not exclude me. Mm. And he, he, he kept before us the demand that we understand what we were about in terms of God's presence and God's call upon us uh, in a way that was inviting um, and not just directive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I went back to my room. It, I, I was a lot more shy then than I am now. And um, it, it was a filthy room. There were roaches in it and um, but I felt like in this hotel, I was fortunate to have a room in light of the fact I was a late registrant and uh, I, it was quite uncertain whether there would be uh, room availability. So I didn't complain about having this room and I can't stand roaches. But when I went back to the room, I found myself feeling at one with the roaches roaming about the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not me, you know, but I, I, I had this sense of community and, mm -hmm. and it's, Thurman wasn't saying anything about roaches or anything like that, but the way in which he was characterizing a community stressed this oneness that spoke to me at a level that never left. And um, so when I got back, I... I read everything I could uh, of Dr. Thurman, all of the available books. Uh, there were uh, two or three uh, LPs of his speaking, and I had those. And it was a year later, going to the same conference, but a, a year later, that I decided to write him. 
and asked if I could spend time with him. And um, I explained that I didn't have an agenda, except I felt that it was important that I not lose the opportunity to make a connection with someone who not only had made such an impact on my life, but was continuing to make such an impact of my life. And the closest I could come to an explanation was uh, perhaps it's analogous to the urgency he felt in needing to meet Rufus Jones mm. uh, after reading Rufus Jones's uh, Finding the Trail of Life. Um, it, it's, it's that sort of connection that started with Thurman. Went out, spent a day with him. He, he devoted a day, even though he, he said, you know, I don't do this anymore. Um, I used to, but it's, but I decided that um, there was something in your letter that I needed to say yes to. And uh, what he told my wife was, um, I was worried, my wife Sue was worried that it would take too much energy. And he said, it took energy, but it's, um, it's come back to me. And it's, it's from that our relationship started where uh, for probably about uh, a year or 18 months, it was uh, primarily on the basis of relationship, of friendship. And I was doing doctoral work at the time. And it was during the period of doctoral work that I realized that uh, Howard Thurman and I could be an important subject for my own scholarship and asked if he would be willing to um, uh, allow that, to, to cooperate with that. And he was. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a, a blessed friendship and journey that you had with him in what, the last eight years of his life or something close to that. Yes. That, that has borne so much fruit for so many of us. I think it sort of that, that initial attraction that you had to Thurman from your heart and soul and mind, rather than as an object of scholarly inquiry, certainly helps explain why so many of us feel that even though we we didn't meet Thurman, we're meeting him in you, um, that, that you have that, that combination of qualities um, shaped in part by what passed between the two of you, but also by what you brought to that relationship. I want to connect a couple of dots here, Luther. Um, you said uh, when you spoke about <clears throat> first hearing Thurman speak in public, you said that it was as if he were saying, the critical message that I have to bring does not exclude me, me the speaker. And that really struck me because I think one of the most misinterpreted and ill-used words in the Christian vocabulary is humility, as if we were called to be meek and mild and, and you know, like a mouse in the corner, not make too much noise, not get into good trouble, as John Lewis urged us to do. But when you can speak from a, a critical word, a, a disturbing word, an upsetting word from a place that says, and this includes me, I am not exempt from this critique, you're doing something entirely different. It, it is genuine humility, it seems to me, 
to be able to find in your critical thoughts self-referencing. We're all in this together. God ain't finished with any of us yet. We're all growing. And that's an invitation to the other. And so I want to connect that dot with your and Thurman's um, profound interest in community. Um, I had not realized that one of your first pieces of writing included a case study of Koinonia Partners in Americus, Georgia, which I don't believe I've ever told you this, but that's part of where my search for community began as well. Um, a very a place that has always offered a powerful example of what real community is like. And if real community is, is anything, it, it is that we're all in this together. We're, God ain't finished with any of us yet. We have critical things to say, but they're about us, about me, as well as each other, and hopeful things that embrace all of us as well. I know that community building was your one of your initial impulses in going to seminary. You were a community organizer at heart. And I know that your students, as Carrie referenced, speak about the strong sense of community in your classes. So I'm wondering if you could talk with us a bit about your understanding of communal dynamics, especially in this Christian framework that um, you uh, have occupied all your life, the beloved community, um, which reaches out from, from so-called sacred places to so-called secular places, because in my mind, at least, there's no place that isn't sacred. There's just some that have been desacralized. But I'd love to hear you talk about your understanding of community and what it is that you're inviting people to when you speak that way. Yes. Um, I think the importance of community uh, is part of this uh, formative source of uh, nurture in my life. Um, my parents would speak about uh, the issues of racial injustice and the issues of, of threat, uh, not just in terms of the sort of um, uh, anxiety and safeguarding that needs to occur, but in terms of what it means for us to be really moving toward a, a better world. Um, and my mother would speak of her grandfather's working toward that. So that it, it, it wasn't just a formation to be reactive, but to really be active in shaping a future that was aligned with what we understood to be God's call upon us, upon, upon what it means to have a Christian identity, for example. And this was reinforced in the church, um, where I would continually hear of possibilities beyond what we were now experiencing. Uh, there would, a, a vision of the future would be cast of equality, of, of, and of course, moving into the text of, uh, you know, of peace and the lion and the lamb being together. It's uh, the, all of this is so rich out of the 
out of our uh, biblical uh, tradition. And I grew up with the conviction that if more of us were really committed to community, we could have experiences of this beloved community that I had been hearing about. And it's, it's what led to the research that I did on intentional communities, hmm. where people were able to make every sacrifice of time, living arrangements, resources, um, even notions of, of what a career would be to give themselves to their own vision of community. And, and what emerged from that research for me uh, was how complicated community is yeah. with people who are fully committed mm -hmm. <laughs> and how you can have persons uh, who are serious about the shape of community, working with others who are very serious about the shape of community and the sort of conflicts that emerge are can be a threat to um, community itself. Uh, that that was helpful to to see. I I had though earlier in my community organizing also experienced that working in organizing welfare recipients in the welfare rights organization uh, to be advocates for their own um, rights and attending to the kind of injustices uh, that were occurring with with welfare recipients and discovering in community organizing where I felt we would all be uh, putting our shoulders to the same wheels for justice. Um, community is a lot more complicated than that. <laughs> and and all, of, all of the kind of uh, emotional issues, ego issues that occur in uh, structures that we may be criticizing can be occurring within the grassroots organizations for, for those fighting for uh, overcoming oppression. And um, that, was, that was also helpful. So I, I had a, an increasing realism and pragmatism about community emerging in ways that would align to visions of beloved community. But I, I, I never lost the conviction of, of giving ourselves to beloved community and experiencing beloved community in the midst of so much else that is going wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and and that's, that's been a motivation that has also addressed uh, I think for me, um, two uh, pitfalls for people who are motivated by a vision of a beloved community. One is fatigue. Yeah. Um, you know, after working so hard for so long, it doesn't happen. <laughs> and to um, and to recognize this is a spiritual issue as well as a physical issue and how often fatigue sets in, um, not simply as part of the rhythm of, of giving yourself to a cause, but fatigue sets in in ways that 
deadens the heart. And uh, it's important for us to be addressing that all along the way in ways that are not waiting for an experience of beloved community to come along that we can celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> it, <it's, Right. laughs> this, yeah. this, this is part of, of, of sustaining ourselves and it's, it's a spiritual work. The second aspect of that is working with the assumption that as I am successful in achieving particular objectives of beloved community, they're going to hold. And if they don't hold, there's something wrong with uh, the work that was done. And, uh, you know, that, that's just not the way it, it happens. You, you get to the promised land and you have your days in the promised land. And lo and behold, um, the folk who were uh, speaking so ill of the leaders who were there before we got there are now themselves exercising the same behaviors <laughs> that they were criticizing. Mm. And um, I, I realize how that can be so disheartening, literally disheartening, that uh, persons give up on transformation, persons give up on beloved community, persons give up on trusting others in this work. But uh, there is, for me, uh, much to be celebrated as, you know, it's, as uh, Frederick Douglass said, sometimes the only reward for being in the struggle is being in the struggle. <laughs> and to, to have a kind of, of um, understanding of what it means to be on a journey with valleys and mountaintops, with companions who you trust, companions who betray, with the with 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 a heartache, the heartbreak, the experiences of death that you that that make absolutely no sense, and to find for oneself a way of being on the journey that does not lose the joy. Yeah, and joy being different than happiness. Yes. It's not. Yes. It's not uh, situational. I I I have um, some a group of really amazing women that I have a little book group with, and uh, we've been doing a lot of reading of Howard Thurman's works and and yours. And um, uh, and last night we were reading some uh, Rufus Jones. Mm. We came to Rufus Jones by way of Thurman. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Me too. And we were reading a part last night about that work toward the beloved community, the better, kinder world, the, the more just world. Uh, but I forget exactly how he put it, but remembering that it's still happening now, it's still, it's still present in some people. The way he put yes. it, it's still, the beloved community is, is present in some people. And to take heart in that. But I, I think it's, you know what you're talking about in terms of this idea of working towards something and the fatigue and confusion that goes with along with this may take longer than my lifetime and what you know what do i do with that and how far uh, can i come and 
uh, what will be the story my grandchildren will tell, you know? Yes, yes. Um, this, this also relates for me to the opening question about the ancestors. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I think of my ancestors in slavery, <laughs> who lived in conditions that um, seemingly held no promise of anything to celebrate. And yet, um, so many who, um, who refused to allow their circumstances to crush their spirit. And um, one, one of the emphases of, of Thurman has been to uh, not allow oneself to be defined by your environment. Yeah. This was true for my parents even before, long before I ever uh, met Thurman. And so there was a lot uh, within mm -hmm. Thurman that resonated with where I was. Um, I, I'm not sure I had many conversion experiences of thought with Thurman, but I had deepening experiences about what I was thinking from Thurman and, you know, leading me to a path to Rufus Jones, Meister Eckhart, and so many others uh, within the rootage of, uh, of, of, of the Christian tradition and mystical experience mm -hmm. and going beyond the Christian uh, tradition in terms of resources for nourishment. But this sense in which um, I, I, I could understand the, the ancestors having these spirituals of glory hallelujah. <laughs> in the midst of slavery and who could in some way not, um, not just persevere but allow their their themselves to to grow and um, allow themselves to be vital even when they were in a a suffocating environment it uh so there's a sense of indebtedness, I feel, to that heritage to move into my future with the same kind of mm. determination, as well as um, to not allow uh, disappointing outcomes uh, to be not only matters of, of frustration, but to be matters of uh, closure. Yeah. 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 You know, I think your teachings about community um, are so very important, and I resonate with them very deeply because, as you know, I spent 11 years living in an intentional community, and I experienced every bit of what you're talking about, an idealistic community based on Quaker faith and practices that Rufus Jones helped establish. Um, but I think your teachings about community are so important because if community is ever to succeed, Step one is to demythologize it so that we go into it expecting reality, not some fulfillment of fantasy. It's kind of like what makes a successful friendship or a successful marriage. And demythologizing those relationships is critical. So I think it's really important to understand demythologizing as a step toward possibility. That if we can get down, if we can get real with each other about what's involved here, the covenants we make are going to be much more doable and sustainable 
uh, than if we're off on some fantasy trip about how lovely the whole thing is, yes. is, going, to, is going to be. And kind, of, yes. and kind of circling back around to a little earlier in the conversation, you know, demythologizing, but that dedication to uh, vulnerability and honesty um, as a way forward, you know, talking about white identity, even though it's it's really uncomfortable and it hasn't been encouraged in a lot of um, spiritual community or f- around the family table. Um, you know, those those conversations, those um, you know, yeah, that that whole experience of community too, uh, demythologizing and also approaching it with a kind of compassionate honesty and compassionate vulnerability because honesty always, almost always will go hand in hand with a certain kind of vulnerability. Yes, yes. What what I think is a real gift of Thurman in in, um, talking about the spiritual disciplines is his, his focus on suffering as a spiritual discipline not just as something that happens to us. And um, if we understand that the very process of moving toward community entails the spiritual discipline of suffering and not just um, a way to avoid the reality of suffering, mm-hmm. um, yeah. it, it, it's really crucial, I think, for our ability to be engaged, to celebrate, to uh, hold the joy and to continue forward. But if suffering becomes the barrier to moving forward, then um, <laughs> then you don't even have to experience suffering in order to be stopped. You could just be facing someone who threatens suffering <laughs> and you're stopped. Yeah. And and suffering becomes more of a god than God, in that it it determines what you're going to do as well as what you're not going to do. And I I think one of the um, key dimensions of increased racial understanding that will contribute to racial justice is um, more than the capacity to have deep conversation, but but being in sustained Uh, not only conversation, but being in in sustained justice work together so that what we come to know as um, uh, really being involved in this movement toward the kind of beloved community where um, racism isn't the dominant uh, force what, what's going to be so crucial to that is our capacity to speak about matters of identity that take us to places of pain, yeah. as well as um, our, our even being in the room together in very painful ways. Uh, sometimes the pain is in terms of you know what I'm going through or what I've gone through or what my ancestors went through. So, so don't keep me for now from bringing my ancestral um, 
life, that that heritage into the room with me uh, and just thinking this is about, you know, you and me. But I want to bring my whole self into this conversation. I want to bring my whole self into an understanding. And, and I would hope that the experience that we have together isn't assumed to be in some ways sufficient because the, 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 the call of beloved community is a call for transformation, not just a call for awareness. Yeah. And uh, even if we are so unsuccessful in getting transformation in so many areas, there's a transformation that has occurred by the very fact that you and I have been on the journey together. And um, that deepens whatever understanding we thought we had in the room where the discussion was occurring, but it also deepens our capacity to be making a difference that makes a difference in the lives of, of so many others. But, but that occurs, I think, when we have together been in the territory of suffering. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can testify, Luther, to what it has meant to me um, to be on the journey with, with you and Greg Ellison and others of your friends over the last few years, especially around the work of Howard Thurman, but also in, in your own right as human beings and fellow travelers. You know, I remember spending a lot of time at Haley Farm, where we were for four days, in relative silence, which is unusual for me. <laughs> I was drinking from a fire hose of black history and black experience and a, a deep inward look at Thurman's life and ministry and message for the world. And all of it was affecting me profoundly. I was awakening in this corner and that to various things I hadn't seen or I hadn't had the courage to say, even though I'd seen them. This this notion that I wish my family had talked about what it meant to be white in this society is a good example of that. I think in some ways, although I'd been on that path as a community organizer since 1969, this last decade or so has awakened all kinds of things in me that, that I need to claim publicly, not only white privilege, which is, I think, a no-brainer in this society, but also the kinds of seeds of white, of white supremacy that exist within the consciousness of a white person who doesn't understand that he too has a racial identity. Uh, the reason white people don't understand that, I think, is they think of themselves as normative. Uh, and it's everybody else who has a race and therefore a problem. Right. right. Um, I, you know, you and I both know that from time to time in the last 50 years in America, uh, commissions, high-level commissions have been called on the issues in the black family, kind of what's wrong with the black family. Well, when I watched January 6th happen in this country and saw that the overwhelming majority of those people, over absolutely overwhelming majority of those people were, were white, and uh, many of them calling themselves Christian, which is another thing that Thurman had a lot to say about and you've had a lot to say about. Uh, 
Um, I began telling my friends that I think it's time for a commission on what's wrong with the white family, that we can raise men especially, but also women, who are now at the forefront of what our intelligence and security people tell us is the major threat uh, in terms of domestic terrorism in the United States, white right-wing terrorism based on white supremacy. So this whole call to racial identity for someone like me involves suffering, um, painful awareness about oneself and one's blindness, It involves the need for fellow travelers like you and Greg Ellison, and also white friends like Carrie, with whom I can talk honestly about these things. And um, it's it's a huge call that I hope will be understood by folks who follow this podcast and this website as one of the most critical examples of the growing edge Hmm. of our lives, the edge to which Howard Thurman called us and after which we named this program. So I know we have to wrap up this conversation soon. I wish it could go on for several podcasts, but I just wanted to say that with a deep bow to you and the people you've taught. Yeah. What a legacy. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's, um, really uh, a privilege for me to have this conversation with the two of you and um, to be part of the programs that you're doing. Um, it, you know, Carrie, your, your music has uh, just moved me. Oh, <laughs> and, what a kind of thing to say. Um, oh my goodness. I, um, uh, I just want to follow that one woman with a shovel and uh, just listen to her and uh, watch her and continue to be inspired by her. And the, and, and the way in which you have spoken to these matters of justice and the heart injustice, the, the, the personal themes that you have brought forth when you have uh, uh, really been addressing the, the the larger world in your music, is just um, to me um, a gift. Oh. Uh, there's an there's an African adage: before the spirit can descend, a song must be sung. And you have been singing the songs that I think have really provided spirit. Um, for so many of us, but to speak personally, certainly for me, and and thank you for that. I oh, uh, thank you. What, one of the problems um, I think that we have in trying to identify who are the activists in movements is to uh, often relegate that to those who are involved in the march and in the courtrooms, and we fail to take the necessity of the artists who are contributing as much, if not more, to 
the possibilities for a movement and the sort of renewal we need in order to be sustained in a movement. So thank you for that. And, and Parker, your work has been one that uh, has just benefited me in reading long before you and I met. We actually met for the first time when you came to Candler and you were part of a worship service there. I don't expect that to be a, a context of remembering because you had so many people coming to you, but it was such a privilege to um, hear you speak after already being in my own sense of conversation with you through your reading. And I have, uh, in, in addition to my personal benefiting from the way in which you, with humility, have been speaking about a sense of self and a sense of the future, I have also been um, so pleased to be able to recommend your books to not just students, but other persons who are really discerning about matters of vocation. And some of them have read your book three, four, five times. <laughs> and, 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 and each time they hear something different, but uh, to, to be able to make that kind of reference is such a resource in terms of my own sense of vocation. So thank you. Thank you, Luther. And I'll say amen to what you said about Carrie's work. Well, it's so important. Thank you. I'm so touched by that. And I want to thank you. I think um, a couple, few months ago, I, I wrote a song based on a, a Howard Thurman poem. And you were so kind because I sent you a demo. <laughs> <laughs> emailed it to you and, you and you wrote me back it was it was so kind to me it's like oh you know I was so so touched so and and really touched by your words today um all through the podcast I think our listeners will have a deep well um to to draw from in this conversation today and I really thank you for it thank you friends amen You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she keeps bringing us good stories, good conversations, creative community, and conscience.